Well, I told you last week would be the last time I asked you to turn to John chapter 4. And I'm going to keep my promise now and ask you to turn to John chapter 5. As this morning we take on the first nine verses of John chapter 5. Uh, as I mentioned in my Sunday school class uh, this morning, one of the great benefits of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible is you already know the context of where we are. And you will be able to pick up on many of the similarities that we see in this passage that John has introduced us to earlier. But our text for this morning is John chapter 5, the first nine verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's now pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. That as we study your word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. We would understand how privileged we are to have your word and how blessed we are. And so we ask this morning that you would feed us from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Where does our hope come from? Last week we looked at the importance of faith and saw that even a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Savior. This week we focus on the strength of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus comes unasked and even unnoticed to a place where there is no hope. And He shows us that Wherever he is, there is always hope. Jesus makes all the difference in the life of a helpless man. And significantly for us, it shows us that Jesus is all we need. And so as Jesus is back in Jerusalem, as John recounts yet another one of his signs, this morning I would like us to see three things from our text. First, we see the helpless condition 
of mankind. Helpless condition. And then second, we see a searching question that Jesus asks. And then finally, we see the life-changing word that Jesus gives. A helpless condition, a searching question, and a life-changing word. Let's start then by looking at the setting that John gives to us in chapter 5. The chapter opens up with Jesus back in Jerusalem. He had previously been in Galilee where he had just healed the royal official's son. And John tells us at the beginning of this chapter that this occurred after this. That is, after Jesus healing the official's son. But John is not specific in his timeline. Now, if it seems so far in this book that John is jumping around a bit, well, he is. He's relating to us events not in a strict chronological order with all of the events before us, but he's relating events to serve his purpose. The Gospel of John is not Jesus' diary of events. It's what John needs us to know to fit his purpose. And you remember what that purpose was. We've gone back to it over and over again. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it was to tell us the signs that Jesus did so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what the gospel's all about. And so, for us... Jesus has gone from Judea down up to Galilee through Samaria, and now he's gone back to Judea. But for John, this is merely one revelation of who Jesus is to another revelation of who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is here, John tells us, for a feast, a feast of the Jews. And we don't know which particular feast this is. It's probably not Passover because John is a bit fastidious about marking each Passover that Jesus is present at. And that is one of the reasons why we know that Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, was approximately three years. Because there are three Passovers mentioned by John. But there are other feasts of the Jews. There are feasts from the Old Testament like Pentecost or the Feast of Booths. But there also, if you've been with us on Sunday nights as we've gone through previously the book of Esther, you may remember that there was a feast that came out of God's deliverance of the Jews from Haman in the Persian Empire, the Feast of Purim. But here we don't know which it is. And I think that shows us that it is not important to know which feast it is. Because if it were important, John would tell us. The important point is that Jesus typically went to Jerusalem during the high feast days. Now we might ask, why is that so? Well, I think first, because we know that Jesus always kept the law and always honored his father. And so he went to Jerusalem to attend and to celebrate and to be at and to worship at the high feast days of Israel. But I think there's a second reason as well. It also provided an opportunity for Jesus to be around people and to serve them. 
we know that in the days of the feasts, that Jerusalem would swell with people from around the country. And this was an opportunity for Jesus to be around many people, to serve them, to teach them. This is what, I think, made his ministry public. Many people would come and would hear his teaching. Many would see his miracles. And so John records this. As a matter of fact, John records more about Jesus being in Jerusalem than the rest of the gospel authors combined. He tells us a lot about Jesus being in Jerusalem. And when he talks about Jesus being in Jerusalem, he draws our attention to some aspect of Jesus' character and ministry. And what we have here in verse 2 is that Jesus comes to a pool. Now, this pool is not exactly like what you might have in your backyard or in your neighborhood. But it would be not that dissimilar either. It would have been an enclosed artificial body of water that was probably fed by underground springs. You know, you didn't have to bring in water. You didn't have to have a pump going on to circulate the water. You didn't have to chlorinate it. But it was a place where people would go, just as we go, to to cool off, to bathe, to get away from the heat. I think here in Texas, we can understand what that would be like in Jerusalem. It would be very hot. And this is, of course, before the days of the air conditioning unit. It's even before the days of the ceiling fan. And so you can imagine that many would want to go and cool off at the pool. Now, what is interesting about John's description of this pool is that first, it's very specific. And that second, it has been used by scholars to discredit him. Now, what do I mean? John describes this pool in some detail. He says it is by the sheep gate. Now, we know from the book of Nehemiah that this was a small gate in the northern wall of Jerusalem's walls, right near the northeast corner. So if you could picture it in your mind. And you can imagine they opened the gate for what purpose? Well, to let sheep in and out. It's why it's the sheep gate, right? That's what they did in order to bring uh, livestock in from the countryside. And John tells us where it's located by its name, and he tells us it had five colonnades. Now, what's a colonnade? Well, a colonnade is merely a series or an area of pillars that support a roof for shade. It would be the ancient equivalent, not that different from the shade that we have over our playground out in the back of the property. And you know what it would be like to be on the playground in Houston in the summer without shade. The kids couldn't play in the playground because it was made of metal and they would burn themselves. And so these five colonnades provide shade all around the pool. The problem was, for years, no one found this pool described in Jerusalem. And so they said, this doesn't exist. And this is proof that John wrote this gospel. Actually, it wasn't John. Someone wrote it years afterwards, doesn't even know about Jerusalem, probably never went to Jerusalem. And so all that is in this gospel is suspect and fake. And they use that one description to try to discredit all of the accounts of Jesus. 
But then an interesting thing happened not so many years ago. Archaeologists were digging in Jerusalem, and lo and behold, in northeast Jerusalem, guess what they find? Pools. Not one pool, but two. Two trapezoid pools next to each other with a colonnade on each of its four sides. And between the pools, guess what? A fifth colonnade. Perfectly matching the description that John gives us here. You see, this is yet another example of how much as men try, they cannot disprove the Bible. Not because archaeologists are brilliant, or because secret messages about the Bible can be found somewhere. No, because the Bible is God's word. And because the Bible is God's word, it's true. Now at this pool, we see a miserable, if you'll forgive the pun, sea of humanity. John tells us that there is a multitude of invalids here. And he describes them in pitiful detail. They are the blind the lame, the paralyzed. There would be a great number of people thronging here in all types of bad health. You could just imagine what this would look like as people bumped into each other and people crawled over each other and where there was no room to move, where the invalids and the sick could not get themselves cleaned regularly and where they perhaps had sores that oozed. It was just a miserable part of town. You could not ask for a more miserable collection of people. And they would be gathered there, I think, for several reasons. First, their shade. They can get under these colonnades. And especially those who are paralyzed and lame and can't move around, they can sit under the shade and not be in the oppressive heat. You can imagine what it would be like on a day that was 90, 95, 100 degrees out with nothing to shade you from the sun. It would be absolutely miserable. Even worse if you're sick or in pain. And so they try to get under the shade. The second reason why they would go there is it would provide an opportunity for begging. For trying to get money from people. And, and you can imagine what that would look like. We experience that even in our day. There is a kind of moral suasion that people use to try to get money from you as they ask you, begging for money. You know, here in Houston, you do not see at traffic lights and at intersections, bodybuilders standing there pumping iron going, hey, you want to give me some money? I need some protein shakes. You don't see that, do you? What do you see? You see people saying, my children are sick. I lost my legs in battle. My wife has cancer. You see them trying to use every element that they can to convince you that it would be a shame if you didn't give them money. And so that's what you would see here. There would be others that would come for the shade and for the pools and they would see this miserable sea of humanity, all of the sick and the infirm around them. They would feel bad that they were doing better than the sick and the poor and they would part with their money. So this was a great place to beg. I think the third reason they're here, as we'll see a bit later, is it was a place where they thought they might possibly get healing. I'm not sure they hoped for healing, but I think it was in their mind that healing could be found here. We'll understand a bit better 
in a moment. And the pool was called, in Aramaic, Bethesda, which means house of outpouring. How apt a name for this pool. As we're about to see, an outpouring of grace as our Lord comes. Now there is one particular man who is here. We are told that he has been an invalid for 38 years. Now that is a very long time. But I need to let you know that the average life expectancy for a man in the days of the New Testament was 40 years. So either he had spent his entire life being an invalid, or he had lived past life expectancy longer than others the entirety of the time with this sickness, this, this unwellness, this handicap. Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with him. John doesn't tell us that. Isn't it interesting that John gives us some great details, and then there's other things that he just pulls back because it's not that important. It's important that we know that this man is suffering, that he's an invalid, and that as he will tell us shortly, he can't make it into the pool. But we don't know exactly why. It is probable that he was paralyzed, or that at least his legs didn't work, because he couldn't get to the pool. Maybe what that meant was he could drag himself around a bit on the area around the pool, but he couldn't go down the steps into the pool. Now, you understand what that's like, don't you? Because one of the things that our society has done over the last 20 or so years is tried to make buildings and businesses much more accessible to those who don't have the use of their legs, who have wheelchairs or crutches, and they have ramps that they can go up and down because stairs are exceedingly difficult to navigate. So you could just imagine this man cannot get into the pool very easily because there are stairs leading into it. And his answer to Jesus in verse 7 confirms our suspicion that he was one of the paralyzed because he could not move quickly when he wanted to. Well, in verse 6, we learn that he has been there a long time, John says. Now, we don't know if this is referring to a particular day that he spent the entirety of the day there, or a particular season that he's been there many days over the last few months, or even if he's been laying there off and on for 38 years. But what we see here is he's been in this condition at the precipice of hope for a very long time. And I think the only thing worse than having absolutely no hope is to have a sliver of hope that keeps getting snatched away from you over and over again. That's who this man is. Now, it appears that he's gone some way, he's got some way to get from the shaded area to the pool, but he has great difficulty getting in. Now, why would he try to get into this pool? Why are all these people around the pool? It appears that there was a belief that the pool had healing powers. That's what we see in verse 7. I'm going down into the steps before me, and another goes up before me, he says. I can't get there. The water would be stirred up, and they thought that one, once that happened, the first one into the pool would be healed. Now, we don't know how often the pool was stirred, 
or how many, or even if anyone had been healed at this pool. Because there are stories all the time about desperate people hoping that certain places or water will have healing properties. We see this all the time. Near where I grew up, there is a place where there was a claimed sighting of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it immediately became a tourist attraction. People would come there hoping that if someone had seen Mary there, that they might see Mary there and Mary might heal them there. Now, there were no accounts of healings. There were some other accounts of sightings that are vague and unclear, but people kept flocking there even though it was not as if there was a record of everyone who had been healed there. That's the situation here. We come to this text. It's a text of superstition. Don't believe that what you're seeing here is the miracle pool. People think it's the miracle pool. And that's enough to keep them there. Well, notice what we see in verse 4. Well, you can't. Can you? Because verse 4 is not there in the text. If you look in the English Standard Version that we use, there is no verse 4. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. That's odd, isn't it? What's going on there? Perhaps your Bible, like mine, has a footnote at the bottom in very small print. You need to get your glasses out and see. That says that some manuscripts insert... Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So why is this not included? Why do we not have verse 4? Well, I want you first to remember, I've told you this before, that the chapter and number divisions are not inspired. They came hundreds of years after... The Bible was written. And I'm glad that there are chapter and number divisions. It's so when I say to you, open your Bibles to John 5, verse 1, you can find it quickly. Instead of me saying, go to the story about Jesus at the pool. And some of you think it's at the end, and some of you think it's at the beginning, and we spend 10 minutes trying to find where we are. Chapter and numbers, verse numbering is great. But... Since the introduction of these numbers, new manuscripts have been introduced. Now, I need to speak to you for a moment about manuscripts of the Bible. Manuscripts are handwritten copies of the Bible. Before Xerox was invented, before there were even mimeographs or anything that could copy, before they even had that paper you could put under paper and put a pencil over the top of it and have it come through, documents were copied by people. And they would look at one and they would write it on another. And then later on, someone else would look at their copy and they would look at the copy and they would make their own copy. And this is how copies of the Bible made it throughout all of the world. Now, there are thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. I need to tell you this as someone who has spent significant period of time studying classical ancient history. There is no document that exists that is within shooting range of being as present in manuscripts as the Bible. All of the authors and all of the documents that we take for granted, Plato, Caesar, Cicero, Homer, Aristotle, 
all of them have but a small fraction of the manuscripts that the Bible has. So the Bible is by far and away better attested. So whenever someone tells you, we don't know we have a real Bible because we don't really have any manuscripts, say, well, what do you think of Caesar's Gallic Wars? Does that not exist? Is he a figment of my imagination too? I guess you don't believe in Plato either. Or the Iliad. You watched that movie, didn't you? What are you talking about? Now, one of the things that happened in especially the 19th century is archaeology became more sophisticated. And they were able to do digs and have access as the area opened up to Western um, academics to do digs in the Holy Land and to find various manuscripts, documents, um, pottery, utensils, you name it. And what they found, because the area is so dry, they found several manuscripts that were appreciably older than the oldest manuscripts we had by hundreds of years. So they were older, and by definition, you would think they would be more accurate because instead of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, a thousand years later, you go back to the first copy, right? That's what you do. You've played that game, right, with the, with the uh, string and, the, uh, and the, the cups or the whisper game where you play around the room and by the time you get around the end of the room, you don't even recognize what was said because errors in transmission. So we go back all the way to the beginning. Now, another thing you have to hear, those earliest manuscripts differ from the thousands of manuscripts in but a handful of places. They're virtually identical. I mean... We see this all the time. We read things and we see a typo and we don't even, we read over it. I have trouble proofreading things because I don't catch the typos. My mind sees what I want to see. I correct it. So there's, it's not as if this is a whole different Bible with a whole different teaching. One of the very, very few places where these early manuscripts are different is here. And scholars believe that a copyist was copying John 5, saw verse 7, wondered why verse 7 was there, and remembered, oh, there's this saying in Jerusalem that there was a pool where you could be healed. That's what the guy's talking about in verse 7. It must have got skipped over in the last copy. I better put that in here so people understand verse 7. Now, I'm not sure he said it exactly like that, and he certainly didn't say it in English. But you get the drift. Why am I going on and on and on about this? Miracles in the Bible are not random. Nowhere in the Bible do you see random miracles where someone is randomly healed of a disease they have. Every miracle in the Bible has a purpose. And that purpose is to validate God's word, to validate God's prophet, whether you're talking about Moses or Elijah or Elisha or Jeremiah or Jesus. The miraculous sign verifies the truthfulness of God's word. And verse 4, as it exists, doesn't meet that criteria. It describes something random. An angel comes down, I guess because he's bored, and stirs the pool, and someone, we don't know who, we don't know how often, is healed, and no one gives God glory, and we don't know why they're doing it. And so for that reason, scholars believe that 
we should side with the earliest manuscripts for theological and manuscript reasons and not have verse 4. Why have I gone on about this? Don't let this make you doubt the Bible. This whole passage shows that history and archaeology validate the Bible. I told you about the pool that they found. And so, don't question the Bible because of it. Well, the second thing that we see beyond just this helpless situation is Jesus comes and he asks a searching question. Jesus comes upon this man. And notice how John describes this. Out of all of the people there, and there would have been many miserable people, Jesus sees him. Don't miss this about Jesus. This man does not come up to Jesus. He doesn't try to prove his worth. He doesn't show that he's the most worthy of healing. He's just one man among many. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. We find out after the fact, after he's been feel, healed, someone comes up to him and says, who's healed you? And he says, I have no idea. I don't know who it was, and I, I got so excited I forgot to ask his name. So it's not as if this man knew Jesus or a relative of Jesus or he pled a sob story to Jesus and that's how he got to Jesus. No. This is how Jesus comes to people in need. He initiates. He shows mercy. He is in control. And not only that, Jesus knows. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus did not have to be told his story. He already knew. And interestingly, there are several Greek words that can be used as the equivalent of our English word to know. This particular one has the connotation of to know by experience. You know how that works, right? There are certain things that you learn in a book, in school. And there are other things you learn by, well, let's call it trial and error, by experience. How does Jesus know him and his situation by experience? Well, Jesus is this man's creator. He knew everything about him. Just like he knew everything about Nicodemus. Just like he knew everything about that woman at the well. Just like he knew everything about the official son. We shouldn't be surprised by this now. John keeps introducing us to this aspect of Jesus. And Jesus knows because he's here with a purpose. Are you getting that by now in this gospel? Jesus doesn't just wander from place to place. John may seem to take us from place to place and incident to incident without a great deal of context. But Jesus is on a mission everywhere he goes. And his mission here is this man and his problem. And so, as he so often does, Jesus goes to this man. Now imagine the scene. The man has no idea who Jesus is. He's weak. He's frustrated. He's hurting. He's not particularly in the mood for casual conversation. 
But Jesus initiates with him just as he initiated with the woman at the well. Jesus knows. Jesus acts. And this is important for us to see because so often people see problems and don't want to get involved. We don't want the stickiness of life. We look the other way, away from the problem. But not Jesus. And he of all people has the right to look away. This problem is in his problem. He hasn't sinned. He's not responsible for this man's problem. But he doesn't. He doesn't look away because he has mercy on us. Just like he does on this man. The man had no idea that he needed Jesus. Neither did the woman at the well. But Jesus knew. And so he initiates. And he asks a very odd question. Now, this is another thing you should be used to me saying by now. That John tells us. Jesus says things that we would never say. Things like, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe to a man whose son is dying. And we wonder, why did you say that, Jesus? So here he looks at the man, and in verse 6 he says, Do you want to be healed? Now, I have to tell you, we have a good and experienced pastoral staff here. Pastor King has been a pastor longer than I have. I guarantee you there is no way that Pastor King is going to come and visit you in the hospital while you're lying there in pain and say, you know, would you like to be healed? It's just not going to happen. I guarantee you that Kurt, who's only been a minister this year, will never ask you that question. It's just not a question you ask. It's rude. What? You think I want to stay sick and in pain? You think I want to have cancer? Seriously. So why does Jesus ask this? Well, I think the answer helps us to see. The man answers, but he misses the point. He says, well, of course, but I can't do it, in verse 7. I don't have anyone to take me into the pool. I want you to see yet another similarity. Jesus is asking him if he wants to be healed. And the man's talking about getting in the pool. Does that remind you of anything? Like Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, how do I get up in my mother's womb? Like the woman at the well, I would give you living waters. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. My food is to do the will of my Father. Did somebody sneak Jesus' lunch when we weren't looking? Over and over again we see this. Jesus is talking on one level, and the other person who's speaking with him is missing the point entirely. Jesus is asking a deeper question here. And the man doesn't get it. Jesus wants the man to see his real need. That his need is beyond physical healing. He is asking the man if he's willing to leave his old identity and life behind. You see, if the man were healed, he would lose his ability to beg. Now, if you spent 38 years as an invalid, you haven't exactly built up your job skills or resume. So being healed would in some sense mean this man had no way to live or eat. 
as bad as it would be to be paralyzed, as difficult as it would be to be an invalid, he survived 38 years. He might not make it a month afterwards if we're only thinking in terms of the physical and what's before us. But more than that, Jesus is asking him if the man trusts him. You see, Jesus is not offering to drag him into the pool. Jesus is not offering help on the man's terms. Jesus is saying, do you trust me? Will you stop clinging to false hope? Jesus asks you that today. Jesus is not the one who will give you what you want on your terms. If you are looking for Jesus to fix your family, to fix your financial situation and security, or even your personality, that's not him. Jesus comes to you with full healing and hope. He will save you, but it will change you forever. You can't go on with life as usual. Jesus saves on his terms, not ours. Are you willing? Do you want to be healed? Then in verse 8, we see a third thing. We see the power of Jesus and his word, his life-changing word. Now, the man does not completely get it in verse 7. We've seen that before. He can join the club. People who misinterpret Jesus' responses. But Jesus, in his mercy and compassion, acts unilaterally. Without the man's permission. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus is God himself. When he asks the question, he already knows the answer. He already knows our greatest need. You know, there is a blasphemy from the pit of hell that says that God is a gentleman. And that unless you do your part to come to God, God is going to be restrained and wait for you to take the first step. That's a lie. Praise be to God that he always takes the first step. That when we are weak, when we are dead, when we are in our trespasses and sins, Jesus comes to us. He doesn't stand by saying, well, if you'd only show some signs of life, can't really help you unless you do. No. Jesus takes the initiative here. And with one word, so to speak, 38 years of misery and pain end. Now notice something else here. There is no show. Just like the other two signs that we've seen Jesus do, turning water into wine and healing the official son, there's no fireworks, lightning bolts. There's no show to put on for the crowd. There's no need for it. It's just Jesus' word. And it's done. That man would have been expecting something else. He would have wanted Jesus to help him. He would have wanted Jesus to say, I'll take you into the pool, and then you can see the spectacular healing. But you see, the saying, God helps those who help themselves, 
is nowhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is in the Bible. That God helps those who are weak and cannot help themselves. Now notice also that this miracle is not uncertain. Jesus didn't heal him of a backache. Jesus didn't say to him, from now on your financial position will be secure in the future. No. A man who couldn't walk for four decades just picked up his mat and walked. Imagine the reaction of those around him. They would be stunned. Imagine his reaction. I like to think that he reacted the way that the man reacts at Acts 3 when he's healed. We're told that he began jumping and leaping and shouting hallelujah. How could you not? Jesus had made this man in a moment whole. It's not as if he got up and was rickety and needed a cane and leaned on to his friend. No. By a word, his muscles, his bones, his sinews were made like youth. Jesus had healed him completely. How simple. How powerful. How life-changing. If anyone had spoken these words besides Jesus, it would have been a cruel joke. Yeah, go ahead, get up. But Jesus is not like anyone else. Jesus doesn't just strengthen you so that you can get through the day. Jesus is the one who gives purpose to your day, to your whole life. Look to him now, because he is really all you need. Not because you can ignore life, but because Jesus gives meaning to life. Do you see the power that Jesus has in his word? The man saw the power of Jesus when his legs started to move. Do you see that power? Do you know that that power is available to you also? God helps the weak, the helpless, the ones who know they're unable. You see, this word here that John uses in verse 3 about all of these people, including this man, invalid. There's the man in verse 5 had been an invalid. This word can also be translated weak, without power. It's a word we see elsewhere in the New Testament. You'll turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We can look at it together. In Romans 5 and verse 6, Paul writes this. For while we were still weak. Now let me translate this for you. For while we were still invalids. At the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the Bible that God of his own initiative in the person of Jesus Christ comes down to sinners who are weak and helpless and undeserving. And he makes them new. He changes who they are forever. This is the story of the Bible. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 25, verse 4. 
He says, For you, Lord, have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. This man didn't need a colonnade. He needed Jesus. Paul says, even while we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In Ephesians 2.5. Our only hope is that Jesus will save us. And you have God's word. His promise. That if you give up trusting yourself, if you are willing to give up your past and your identity rooting in sin, Jesus will save you. The Jesus beside the pool here is the same as Jesus today. He has not changed. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your greatest need. He is asking you now, do you want to be healed? Well, do you? Are you willing to trust Jesus? To submit to him today? Because if you are, then Jesus has a word of grace. A word of healing and power. A word of salvation. Jesus is our hope. Come to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.